0: Hi there, and welcome back to the Doctrine and the Covenants podcast. Today's discussion is going to be for section 82. Let's go ahead and get started with that. I want to read a little background first. In obedience to the Lord's command to sit in council with the saints, which are in Zion, the prophet Joseph Smith, Sidney Rigdon, and Newell K. Whitney, and Jesse Gauz arrived in Jackson County on uh, 24th of April, 1832. The purpose of this visit was to establish a branch of the United Firm in Missouri, according to the Lord's command. At this time, Joseph met with the brethren in a council of high priests after the prophet Joseph Smith was acknowledged by the high priests in the land of Zion to be president of the high priesthood. for um, Sidney Rigdon uh, read the commandment of God to organize the United firm in both Ohio and Missouri. The prophet recorded that during the intermission, the difficulty or hardness which had existed between Bishop Partridge and Elder Rigdon was amicably settled. And when we came together in the afternoon, all hearts seemed to rejoice, and I received the following. I'll read the uh, heading to the section. Revelation given to Joseph Smith, the prophet, in Independence, Jackson County, Missouri, April 26, 1832. The occasion was a council of high priests and elders of the church. At the council, Joseph Smith was sustained as the president of the high priesthood, to which office he had previously been ordained at a conference of high priests, elders, and members at Amherst, Ohio, on the 25th of January, 1832. This revelation reiterates instructions given in an earlier revelation, in other words, uh, Section 78, to establish a firm known as the United Firm under Joseph Smith's direction. The term order later replaced firm to govern the church's mercantile and publishing endeavors. Also, I would suggest that you might want to look at section 78 because there's some readings, uh, some narrative that I had given in section 88 that I won't repeat here. All right. Verse one. Verily, I say unto you, verily, verily, I say unto you, my servants, that inasmuch as you have forgiven one another your trespasses, even so I, the Lord, forgive you. Nevertheless, there are those among you who have sinned exceedingly. Yea, even all of you have sinned. But verily, I say unto you, beware from henceforth and refrain from sin, lest sore judgment fall upon your heads. Sidney Rigdon and Elder and Edward Partridge were not the only ones who had erred, all had sinned, some exceedingly. The revelation does not give the particulars, but church historians note that although the settlements in Zion increased rapidly and were exceedingly prosperous, prosperous, many of the saints failed to obey the counsel of the authorities. Some refused to submit to the law of consecration, preferring to obtain property for themselves, and jealousy, covetousness, and general neglect of duty resulted. Some of the high priests and elders ignored the seven presidents appointed to have charge of the branches in Zion, that is Oliver Cowdery, W. W. Phelps, John Whitmer, Sidney Gilbert, Edward Partridge, Isaac Morley, and John Coral, and took the leadership into their own hands. Hence the warning refrain from sin lest sore judgments fall upon you. Verse three for of him unto whom much is given, much is required, and he who sins against the greater light shall receive the greater condemnation. Members of the church are sometimes guilty of the same sins that afflict fallen man generally," Elder McConkie said. "When they are, but when they are, their condemnation is greater than it otherwise would be because of their greater light and knowledge. In addition, many acts become sinful for the saints that would not be so considered had they not taken upon themselves the obligations of the gospel. Concerning those who sin against greater light, the Book of Mormon teaches. Thus, we can plainly discern that after a people and have been enlightened by the Spirit of God and have had great knowledge of things pertaining to righteousness, and then have fallen away into sin and transgression, they become more hardened, and thus their state becomes worse than than though they had never known these things. For example, uh, those that um, have not entered into covenants to keep the word of wisdom, if you smoked or drank, you would not be sinning because you haven't made a promise not to. Uh, Even though it might not be wise or good judgment, it's still not a sin. Verse 4, ye call upon me, ye call upon my name for revelations, and I give them unto you. And inasmuch as ye keep not my sayings which I give unto you, ye, ye become transgressors. And justice and judgment are the penalty which is affixed unto my law. we don't follow the promptings given by the Holy Ghost, we won't receive more promptings. Therefore, what I say unto one, I say unto all, watch. For the adversary spreadeth his dominion, and darkness reigneth. And the anger of God kindleth against the inhabitants of the earth, and none doeth good. For all have gone out of the way. And now, verily I say unto you, I the Lord will not lay any sin to your charge. Go your ways and sin no more, but unto that soul who sinneth, shall the former sins return, saith the Lord your God. President Kimball explained, To return to sin is most destructive to the morale of the individual, and gives Satan another handhold on his victim. <clears throat> Those who feel that they can sin and be forgiven, and then return to sin and be forgiven again and again, must straighten out their thinking. Each previously forgiven sin is added to the new one, and the whole gets to be a heavy load. Thus, when a man has made up his mind to change his life, there must be no turning back. Any reversal, even in a small degree, is greater to, is greatly to his detriment. Verse eight. And again, I say unto you, I give unto you a new commandment that you may understand my will concerning you. Or, in other words, I give unto you directions how you may act before me that it may turn to your own salvation, or turn to you for your salvation. I, the Lord, am bound when ye do what I say, but when ye do not what I say, ye have no promise. In other words, God works by law. <clears throat> Verse 11 Therefore, verily I say unto you that it is expedient for my servant Edward Partridge, and Newell K. Whitney, A. Sidney Gilbert, and Sidney Rigdon, and my servant Joseph Smith, and John Whitmer, and Oliver Cowdery, and W. W. Phelps, and Martin Harris, to be bound together by a bond and covenant that cannot be broken by transgression, except judgment shall immediately follow in your several stewardships. The men named were of the order of Enoch, or the United Order. As leaders in the church, they were to be examples to all others, showing how the law of consecration was to be lived. The bond and covenant to which they were binding themselves was that of the law of consecration. They were to make a solemn covenant with the Lord to keep the laws and rules of that order. The penalty for breaking that oath and covenant was severe. Verse 12, to manage the affairs of the poor and all things pertaining to the bishopric, both in the land of Zion and in the land of Kirtland. For I have consecrated the land of Kirtland in my own due time for the benefit of the saints of the Most High and for a stake of Zion. Today there is once again a stake in Kirtland, Ohio, and a stake in Independence, Missouri. This is the first designation of a stake to Zion in the Restoration. In prophetic imagery, Elder McConkie said, zion is pictured as a great tent upheld by cords fastened securely to stakes thus isaiah envisioning the latter-day glory of israel gathered to her restored zion proclaimed enlarge the place of thy tent let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitations spare not lengthen thy cords and strengthen thy stakes for thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left for a small moment have i forsaken thee but with great mercies will i gather thee and of the millennial zion Isaiah exulted, look unto, look upon Zion, the city of our solemnities, a tabernacle that shall not be taken down. Not one of the stakes thereof shall ever be removed. Neither shall any of the cords thereof be broken. In keeping with the symbolism, the great areas of church population and strength, which sustain and uphold the restored Zion, are called stakes. They are the rallying points and the gathering centers for the remnants of scattered Israel verse 14 for zion must increase in beauty the church is as a bride that needs to be more attractive to the lord and in holiness her borders must be enlarged her stakes must be strengthened yea verily i say unto you zion must arise and put on her beautiful garments isaiah's words were awake awake put on thy strength o zion put on thy beautiful garments o jerusalem the holy city In a later revelation, the Lord explained that Isaiah had reference to those whom God shall call in the last days, who should hold the power of priesthood to bring again Zion and the redemption of Israel. And to put on her strength is to put on the authority of the priesthood, which she, Zion, has a right to by lineage, also to return to that power which she had lost. for The borders of Zion to be enlarged is to have the kingdom of God extend beyond its current boundaries. Therefore, I give unto you this commandment that ye bind yourselves by this covenant, and it shall be done according to the laws of the land. Behold, here is wisdom also in me for your good. In other words, uh, or let me just read this little brief thing here. To help the Lord's people improve their talents for the good of all, seek the interest of their neighbor, and do all things with an eye single to God's glory. Now, verse 17, and you are to be equal, or in other words, you are to have equal claims on the properties for the benefit of managing the concerns of your stewardship. Every man, according to his wants and his needs, inasmuch as his wants are just. Concerning the consecration of property, first, it is not right to condescend to very great particulars. In taking inventories, the fact is this, a man is bound by the law of the church to consecrate to the bishop before he can be considered a legal heir to the kingdom of Zion. And this too without constraint, unless he does this, he cannot be acknowledged before the Lord on the church book. Therefore, to condescend to particulars, I will tell you that every man must be his own judge. How much he should receive and how much he should suffer to remain in the hands of the bishop. I speak of those who consecrate more than they need for the support of themselves and their families. The matter of consecration must be done by the, by the mutual consent of both parties. For To give the bishop power to say how much every man shall have and he be obliged to comply with the bishop's judgment is giving the bishop more power than a king has. And upon the other hand, to let every man say how much he needs and the bishop be obliged to comply with his judgment is to throw Zion into confusion and make a slave of the bishop. The fact is, there must be a balance or equilibrium of power between the bishop and the people, and thus harmony and goodwill may be preserved among you. Therefore, those persons consecrating property to the bishop in Zion and then receiving an inheritance back must reasonably show to the bishop that they need as much as they claim. But in case the two parties cannot come to a mutual agreement, the bishop is to have nothing to do about receiving such consecrations. And the case must be laid before a council of 12 high priests, the bishop not being one of the council, but he is to lay the case before them. Verse 18. And and all this for the benefit of the church of the living God, that every man may improve upon his talent, that every man may gain other talents, yea, even an hundredfold to be cast into the Lord's storehouse to, to become the common property of the whole church. Our physical possessions are not the only things that become part of the bishop's storehouse our talents and abilities are also at the use of the bishop for the good of all 19 every man seeking the interest of his neighbor and doing all things with an eye single to the glory of god in other words we should have christ-like love for others the redemption of zion awaits a truly covenant people besides we must come to the understanding that we are not saved separately or singly Salvation is a community affair. We must learn to bear one another's burdens, strengthen each other, and use the talents and means with which the Lord has blessed us to bless others. We must come to realize that we have no sins that affect only ourselves, for each of our shortcomings detracts from the strength of the whole. Only in unity can we create a Zion community. That was by Joseph McConkie. It is verily true that before we can enter into the celestial kingdom, we will have to learn how to live in unity with, with the love of our fellows at heart, desiring their good, good as well as our own, and not preferring ourselves before them. Here the Lord gave to the church the plan and the opportunity to prepare themselves by obedience to celestial law. They failed, and the privilege to practice this law of consecration had to be postponed because we were not able to, be, to esteem our neighbor as ourselves. And that was by Joseph E. L. Smith. Verse 20, this order I have appointed to be an everlasting order unto you and unto your successors inasmuch as you sin not. And the soul that sins against this covenant and hardeneth his heart against it shall be dealt with according to the laws of my church and shall be delivered over to the buffetings of Satan until the day of redemption. And now verily I say unto you, and this is wisdom, and make make unto yourselves friends with the mammon of unrighteousness, and they will not destroy you. In all of our interaction with those not of our faith, we seek to make friends until he whose right it is to reign returns with equity and justice, laws and ordinances that affects the church's ability to accomplish its mission will be administered by worldly people. We will be much more successful in the work of the Lord as friends to these people than as their enemies." Certainly, the Lord has not com- is not, was not commanding us to partake of the wicked and dishonest practices of the world in this, ad- in this admonition. Rather, we are to freely associate with others in our business and social transactions, exhibiting the light of the gospel in all our dealings. And that was by Joseph E. Lincoln. Verse 23. Leave judgment alone with me, for it is mine, and I will repay. Peace be with you. My blessings continue with you. And even yet, the kingdom is yours and shall be forever if you fall not from your steadfastness. Even so, amen. I just want to read a couple of little things about the law of consecration. How can we live the law of consecration today? Pay tithing and fast offerings and give generously in other ways to those in need. By doing these things, we can help the church care for the poor and carry on the important activities necessary to build the kingdom of God on earth. Aaron G. Romney asked, what prohibits us from giving as much in fast offerings? as we would have given in surpluses under the United Order, nothing but our own limitations. uh, Serving willingly in the church, the Lord has admonished each person to learn his duty and to act in the office in which he is appointed in all diligence. We should fulfill the callings we receive to the best of our ability. In addition to specific church callings, we can share the gospel with others, do temple work, and seek to strengthen the testimonies of those who are new or weak in the faith. Serve as a full-time missionary. Elder Robert D. Hales of the Quorum of the Twelve taught, going on a, on a mission, teaches you to live the law of consecration. It may be the only time in your life when you can live, when you can give to the Lord all your time, talents, and resources. In return, the Lord will bless you with his spirit to be with you. He will, he will be close to you and strengthen you. Elder Maxwell of the Twelve said, we tend to think of consecration only in terms of property and money, but there are so many ways of keeping back part." What are some ways in which we might be keeping back part when we could achieve greater consecration in the service of God and his children? Elder Maxwell, um, consider these examples from Elder Maxwell, he says, an unwillingness to be completely submissive to the Lord's will. The submission of one's will is really the only uniquely personal thing we have to place on God's altar. The many other things we give are actually the things he has already given or loaned to us however when you and i finally submit ourselves by letting our individual wills be swallowed up in god's will then we are really giving something to him it is the only possession which is truly ours to give an unwillingness to give up selfish things such as our roles our time our pre our preeminence and our possessions letting hobbies and preoccupations with less important things become too consuming giving Commendable civic service, but remaining a comparative stranger to Jesus's holy temples and his holy scriptures. Being dutiful in family responsibilities, but not emulating Jesus's example of gentleness with some family members. Building up ourselves first rather than the kingdom of God. Sharing talents publicly while privately retaining a particular pride. Accepting a church calling while having a heart more set on maintaining a certain role in the world. Again, that was by Elder Maxwell. What is the Lord's storehouse? The uh, Church Handbook of Instructions, at least a former one, said, the Lord's storehouse receives, holds in trust, and dispenses consecrated offerings of the saints. The storehouse may be as simple or sophisticated as circumstances require. It may be a list of available services, money in an account, food in a pantry, or commodities in a building. A storehouse is established when faithful members consecrate to the bishop their time, talent, skills, compassion, and financial means in caring for the poor and in building up the kingdom of God on the earth. The Lord's storehouse, therefore, exists in each ward. The bishop is the agent of the storehouse. Guided by inspiration from the Lord, he distributes the saints' offering, offerings to the poor and needy. He is assisted by priesthood quorums and the Relief Society. He is instructed and supported in his responsibilities by stake and area leaders. I bear testimony that these things are true and that as we... Uh, As we can, we can already begin to live the law of consecration in our efforts by the way we serve and the way we bless others. And we don't have to wait to be asked to live the law of consecration to do so. I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. See you next time. Bye.